And I thought about why countries have enemies, what purpose it serves, thought about why people have enemies. And I decided that it really wasn't necessary. It's, it's common, but it's really not a necessary part of life. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am delighted to welcome Bobby Gottschalk to the My Fourth Act podcast. Bobby received a Master's of Social Work in 1966. I just love saying that. I remember vividly where I was in 1966. Bobby spent about 30 years in Chicago and Washington, D.C., supporting young adults and grown-ups with various kinds of disabilities through innovative programming. But something happened in 1993 when Bobby co-founded a powerful organization called Seeds of Peace that worked with teenagers from all over the world and changed the trajectory of how we speak about and deal with historic conflict. Bobby's held various roles with Seeds of Peace. And now 28 years later, and I'm going to mention Bobby's name, Bobby is 78 years old, Bobby continues to be engaged in the work. And that question is a profound interest to me. What sustains us? What keeps us going? And I hope it's of interest to you as well. I know we're going to have a fantastic conversation. So hello and welcome, Bobby. Hi, Hakeem. I'm so happy to be with you. And I'm happy you're here. And as a little disclaimer, I, I want to say is at some point back in the 90s, I had the pleasure to actually work for a couple of years with Seeds of Peace, which is where Bobby and I first met. So Bobby is not some random stranger. <laughs> and uh, we want to spend on, I'm really interested in where the choices Bobby is making now at 78. But to get there, I want to do a little bit of this is your life with you. and. When you were a young girl or a teenager, Bobby, who did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Like, what were your dreams and aspirations? Oh, I wanted to be a camp director because I was in love with camping in Maine. And I had, I was, I had given up on the idea of becoming a dancer as I matured and my body filled out. <laughs> and I was no longer just a little nymph. And I had gone to a dance camp. We had danced mm-hmm. and danced and danced, but we did other things as well. And I adored my camp director. And I loved being a counselor. And I loved being part of that family of, of campers. So I'm curious, when you would come home from these camps and if mom and dad asked Bobby, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you say, I want, I want to run a camp? I want to be a bit camp counselor? Oh, no, that was my secret. Yeah. I kind of thought that. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad we clarified that, Bobby. However, um, however. Yes. My parents assumed that I would like 
to be a camp director. So they bought 55 acres of land in Maine for the time when I would decide to be a camp director. <laughs> I know it's a true story because you said it, but it's almost you can't make that stuff up. That's beautiful. <laughs> no, they just knew it. They just knew it. Nice. I, I Before we get to Seeds of Peace, I am curious about those 20, 30 years when you – you know, you you were a clinical social worker. Your 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 mission was supporting both youth and adults with different sorts of disabilities. And it's hard to think of that kind of a stretch of time and and answer it in on one or two questions. But if you think of that time, what if you think of maybe moments that stood out for you where you went, "Wow, this is why I do this work." Yes. Or there can be moments where you go shoot, am I really doing this? This is driving me crazy. Right? And I, I have a hunch you had both. So go with it where you want, Bobby. Well, I did have both, but I had the pleasure of starting a whole new program for the community in Washington, D.C. that was housed in the Jewish Social Service Agency. And they hadn't had it before. For some reason, the Jewish community had just sort of ignored people with disabilities. And uh, so I, 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 uh, I, I started by um, asking all the people in the community what they thought should be offered mm-hmm. to people with disabilities and their families. A person invited me to, well, two people invited me places and that were very important. One was Kathy Moses invited me to the Gallaudet University uh-huh. and explained that there were a lot of deaf people in Washington, D.C. who didn't have mental health services. Mm-hmm. There, and, and if they could only use sign language, then what would happen was they would go to a typical therapist and they would be writing notes back and forth to each other mm-hmm. instead of looking at each other in their eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's how we communicate so much with our faces, particularly our eyes. She advised me when I said, gee, I'd like to help, that I should learn sign language first. And so I did that. And then a very lucky thing happened to me. The University of Maryland had three graduates from their social work program who were deaf. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for a placement for them. I said, I'll take them, all all of them. And we made a mental health clinic for people who are deaf Mm -hmm. uh, right in the Jewish Social Service Agency. So that was one thing. Another time, the rabbi at the St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in Anacostia, which is close to is part of Washington, actually, invited me to come and meet a young man who was mildly retarded and had um, cerebral palsy, but no social outlet, no anything. And he was very sociable. So the, the hospital had used him as a messenger, and he would get over to the curb to cross the road to get from one building to another at the hospital. And he would slide off his wheelchair onto the street, pull his wheelchair down onto the street, climb back in the wheelchair, go across Mm. the street, 
and reverse the situation on the other side of the street. And he did this all day long. That's That was his life. At one point, I was supposed to meet him in the downstairs area. I, I heard him hollering from a, a stairway. So I went to see what was going on, and he was bouncing himself down the stairs because they mm. didn't have an elevator. Mm. He had left his wheelchair up at the top. So I met him halfway up the steps, and he said to me, Listen, Bobby, I want you to figure out how I can have a bar mitzvah. And he was 39 years old wow. at this time. My brother had a bar mitzvah, and I didn't have one. And I thought, wow, I, that is amazing that he is holding on to this wish mm-hmm. so long. And it turned out that there were lots of young people mm-hmm. with disabilities in the Washington area who were considered too disabled to have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. So we started a whole program. And I've got different rabbis to help train these people. What I'm thinking of as you're sharing this beautiful story is, and if I'm mischaracterizing you, then correct me, please. But I'm hearing, gosh, Bobby was a champion for the forgotten. And something within you was drawn to being a champion for the forgotten because there are many different places where people practice social work. Do you know what was touched inside of you that said, these are the folks that I want to help most? Oh, yes, I do know that. When I was five years old, Mm -hmm. it was right after World War II, and my mother had created a book group for her friends whose husbands were off at war. So it was a long-standing thing, and they would always come to our, our home. What I used to do, and my mother knew about it, but she didn't bow me out. I would sit at the top of the steps so nobody could see me and listen to the women talk about books. So mm. one time they were talking about a book called The Child from Five to Ten. And they said pretty clearly, that the author had had written about only children and that only children were likely to be spoiled. Well, I was an only child Mm -hmm. and my mother couldn't have any more children. So the next day I said, mom, I'm going to be spoiled if you don't get me a brother or a sister. I need a brother or a sister. You really have to help me. They did. They adopted a, a little girl who had been adopted before, but that person couldn't keep them, couldn't Mm -hmm. keep her. So here was an 18-month-old who'd just been tossed around for 18 months, and my parents took her in and loved her as their own. And that was an example for me that probably, you know, is with me forever, I guess. I'm going to jump to 19... 93 now. All righty. So you're in the middle of doing this work that means a lot to you, that Mm -hmm. you are, I assume, emotionally invested in. And then you and a couple of other people start this uh, organization called Seeds of Peace. Mm 
that has done some extraordinary work all over the world with youth, ironically, even though some adults were served as well. Would you tell our listeners who may not know this because you've devoted 28 years of your life to this, so that's a big <laughs> chunk, uh, what, what is Seeds of Peace about? But also, how, how did you, in 1993, get involved with starting this organization that made quite a splash in the world? Well, I actually was, I, I had already decided that I had done enough in the world of disabilities by mm. that time. I had I had worked in a school and I had also worked for the Jewish Social Service Agency. And I thought, you know what? I need another chapter in my life. I need a whole new thing. Mm. So I, I left it in, in good hands. I thought, well, I think I'd like to run something. I'd really like to be the one in charge. It has to have something to do with children, but I'm not sure what it will be. I first applied for another job as an executive director, mm-hmm. but I didn't get it. They they hired a man instead of me, thinking that it was very important um, to have a man in charge. That was back in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hear I hear an opportunity for a whole other podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the old days. Another book group was my book group. Mm-hmm. We read anything we want. It's still going on. And so somebody had read a new book written by John and Janet Wallach called The New Palestinians. It turned out when we looked on the cover of the book, we found out that they live right near us in, in, in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Well, why don't we invite them over to our book group and have them talk about the book? And so they did. And when they were finished, John did something, which later I realized was something he did everywhere he went. He said, I have a great idea. And I'm just wondering if there's anybody in this room who would be willing to help me out a little bit. So he explained that he wanted to have a camp in Maine for kids from the Middle East. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I had been to the Middle East. I had had, uh, I had foster children from Iran. So I'd gotten used to that kind of a culture in my own home and felt comfortable with it. I had also, it also uh, rung a bell for me because I had gone to a camp when I was in college in the Soviet Union. I was very nervous when I went, very, very, very nervous. I learned after a few weeks that these so-called enemies could be friends, Mm -hmm. living together, doing things together, talking a lot. It wasn't all organized like our campus, but just being together was really very helpful. I calmed down and I learned a lot. And I thought about why countries have enemies, what purpose it serves. Mm-hmm. Thought about why people have enemies. Mm-hmm. And I decided that it really wasn't necessary. It's, it's common, but it's really not a necessary part of life. Mm-hmm. And of course, I had had all that those many years at 
uh, being a camper and a counselor. So, it, and I, of course, you know, I wanted a camp in Maine. So I raised my hand and I said, I'd be happy to come talk with you more about it. And then in the meantime, I asked everybody I knew, who's John Wallach and what do you know about him? <laughs> yeah. Everybody said, well, he's somebody who is a little hard to work with. So I said, well, that sounds good to me. I like that <laughs> person. <laughs> I went down and talked with him and he, he said to me the same thing. What have you always wanted to be? And I said, I always wanted to direct a children's program, likely a camp in Maine. And he said, well, let's do it. I'm touched by that story in many ways, but if I relate this to, to our listeners, the opportunity of this came because you were ready for it, right? Oh, um, and, so, and, and I didn't know yes. that, that you were ready for it. Somebody who walked you into the next stage showed up and you recognized that, which is the beauty of it, right? Now, would you paint for our audience? We could spend hours talking about Seeds of Peace, and, and I, I hate to sort of streamline it. But take us to that first experience in camp that was a heady time in, in international politics. Who showed up at camp? And just give us a snapshot of what happened there. Well, uh, we, this was when, when John and I decided to do it. It was after I had said to him, you know, John, if you want to have an international program, and we've never done it before, at least I hadn't, mm -hmm. seems like you need about a year to get, get ready to do it. <laughs> and he said, no, I want to do it this summer, and it was April 15th. So I said, Ugh, what do you have in mind to, you know, how can we do it this fast? So, but he had a lot of connections. He could pick up the phone and call anyone could call the vice president's office. He could call people all over the world. That was a big help. But four months is still not a very long time for planning anything. Yes. But we were offered the camp that we're in now. At that time, it was Powhatan Camp for boys. I went up there and I met the camp director, which and that was Tim Wilson, who was our first camp director. The children were chosen by people in their own country. Uh, it wasn't they weren't chosen by us because mm -hmm. how could we do that? It was we had no money yet. We I had to raise the money, and and John had to raise money. And John would do things like tell a supplier of something we needed, like buses or whatever, and he'd say, if you'll give us this service for free this summer, when we're just starting out, then for the next five years, we'll do business with you. So the airlines gave us free tickets. We had 46 boys and then a bunch of about 10 staff people come over with them. The ho we stayed in hotels different times and they gave us free rooms. And it was uh, just fantastic. But the best thing that happened that time was the Oslo Accord, which occurred right after we had our camp. I'm not going to assume that everybody knows what the Oslo Accords are. And they're, of course, in the history of Middle Eastern um, yeah. peace talks, an important event. Would you just clarify for all of us what the Oslo Accords were? 
It was supposed to be a peace accord between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And it had been orchestrated in Oslo, behind the scenes. There were other people going through the motions of peace talks, but were not really in the actual peace talks. The accord was the pride and joy of President Clinton. And he asked the leaders of both the Israelis and the Palestinians to sign the accord on the South Lawn of the White House on September 13th, 1993. We had been planning to bring everybody from camp to Washington. And may, and I, may I just interject one more point? Because you had 46 young people from, I'm going to use the term, the region from the Middle East there. Which, which countries were they from? Which oh, oh, regions right. did they represent? Well, we had the Palestinians, the Israelis, and the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. We had, there were 46 boys, no girls, because it was a boys' camp and it was set up for boys in many ways. If we did it again, uh, we wanted to fix it so the girls would feel comfortable as well. Mm -hmm. We had planned to meet with the vice president, Vice President Gore, when we brought everybody to Washington, and and uh, he was thrilled with the kids. And John said, well, you know what? If you're this impressed with them, maybe you could help us get an audience with the First Lady because we're going to be at the White House on Friday, and this was Tuesday. Well, he got the First Lady to come down and meet with us. And then John said, after he was very impressed with the boys, you know, these young people have already made peace. Wouldn't it be great if they could join uh, the the president at the festivities for the signing of the As Oslo Accord? And this was a this was Friday. The Oslo Accord took place on a Monday, and all the kids were supposed to fly home on Saturday between the two dates. So I had all those free tickets. <laughs> <laughs> So um, uh, Mrs. Clinton said, yes, that sounds like a great idea. She called Bill Clinton, and he said yes. And so then um, it was a real rush to get the airlines to switch the free tickets to after the Oslo Accord. But it was a wonderful, wonderful, dramatic ending yeah. uh, for our first season. So I'm seeing this dramatic ending, which is extraordinary, both in, in its actuality, but in its obviously symbolic value and meaning. What, I know you went in an American camp setting with these uh, young boys from Israel, Palestine, I'm going to use the word Palestine or Egypt. I know you did some traditional camp activities, but what else did you do to to bring them together or to get into some of the difficult stuff? We do a lot of orchestration at camp in terms of schedule. So we give them lots of time to play together and, and, and be on different teams together and learn new skills so they gain some more confidence. But we also have dialogue at camp, and it's scheduled for almost every day. 
nowadays it's 90 minutes long. I think it was about an hour in, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then, they, so they are carefully divided up into mixed groups. And uh, the facilitators help them discuss the hard issues and help them mm -hmm. see the differences between them as well as the, the similarities, mm -hmm. the hum, human nature between yeah. them. Since I was one of those facilitators for a couple of years, I, I have a good idea of the power, the intensity, and also the challenges of having those conversations. Could you, if you had one story to tell about a memory of one of those conversations or one of those, and I know you have many, 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 what would be one to sort of illustrate for our listeners yeah. that, because you created a space for conversations that these young adults otherwise would never have anywhere. Right. I remember one time a group of Indians and Pakistanis were meeting in the cabin adjacent to mine. So through the wall, I could hear them arguing back and forth. I never knew what they were saying because it was muffled. Mm -hmm. One day, I saw a young boy named Bilal running out of the, of the session that was next door and crying. And I thought, wow, I better go see what's going on. So I jumped up and uh, went out to him and, and just sat with him. And he sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And finally he calmed down and I said, what happened to you? Mm. And he said, I never realized that with my, my own words that I could hurt somebody as deeply as I just did. Mm. Oh, I thought that was so powerful. Yeah. There's power in conversation and creating space for it. I because I encountered CCPs towards the, the later part of the 90s. So here's, here is my impression of what I remember. Um, this was a hopeful time in global peace talks. Yes. You know, there was a sense that there can be peace between Israel and there'll be a state of Palestine and the details can be worked out. And there's this wonderful camp where we're, helping groom future leaders who know people from the, in quotation marks, parentheses, the other side, and, and we're grooming the next generation who will help create a more harmonious life in, in the Middle East and the rest of the world. And for a while, I remember, I, my feeling was, see the piece was, because the, the mission is so beautiful, like, I think of it as the IT organization, right, of in this work. They got a lot of accolades, recognition, was featured in the media, and then 9-11 happened, and uh, the world looked less hopeful. And I would imagine, I'm testing this, it might, might probably got harder to bring young people to get together and to have conversations. And I, I want to focus really on you now rather than the story season piece. Like how, what kept you going when after, well, there wasn't a peace agreement yet. It didn't happen. Right. There was a, a terrorist attack. The way we lived in the world changed. What 
kept you going uh, with an organization you'd founded eight years before that, but the world was changing? Well, I, I think, I think we did a pretty good job of riding that big tsunami wave. Mm-hmm. Right after that, like the November after that, we had a meeting in New York where we brought about 120 of the people who had been to camp in previous years together right next to the United Nations and what they call the church building. Mm-hmm. We sat there with with those former campers from all over and we brought in people for them to listen to and get ideas from and react to. And then we had them write a whole proclamation that to be presented to the United Nations. Kofi Annan was uh, the secretary general at the time. He sent his representative over to talk with them also and then we presented that to Kofi Annan. So it gave, we did that on purpose to give people who had been in Seeds of Peace a feeling that, okay, this happened, but we still have power. We still have agency. Mm-hmm. We can still do something about it mm-hmm. and not just sit around and mope about it. Yeah. And I think and we also did that at, at the end of the 90s when the Oslo Accords seemed like they had definitely run their course with no success in sight, we took about 120 of them to Switzerland to a hotel, took over the hotel, and uh, resolved all the unresolved issues of the Oslo Accord, wrote it up, and hand-delivered it to all the leaders involved. So we, we always help the young people get re-inspired and also to feel that, that the world was in their hands. You may not remember that I was at that event in Switzerland. I and do. And I, I was reminded because of the glint in your eye. <laughs> as soon as but, I said well, it. but to just elaborate on what you said, which is because that event involved bringing in some very well-known people from the Middle East who were speaking with the young people, but the young people had a chance to have their voice heard. Yes. Part of what you and the organization have done so beautifully is create a vessel for voices to be heard that in many other places would have been silenced and given hope to those voices. Here's a word from our sponsor. That's me. I invite you to check out myfourthact.com. There's a whole other world of fourth act conversations going on beyond this podcast. Myfourthact.com. Please take a look. Now, I want to jump forward to Bobby Gottschalk today. Uh, So 28 years is a, that's a really long ride. And I I have a couple of ways I would love to investigate this, but one, so I think of you as a mother, or if you don't mind the term, grandmother to a lot of- I love that term. (laughs) You love that term? Good. From, to a lot of young people from very different parts of the world who you've helped give voice to and be in conversation with. 
Yeah, to give you, the, I mean, to give people an idea of how many, I mean, there are 7,600 young people yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, many, many grandmothers have a hard time staying in touch with their five grandchildren, and you have 7,600. So how do you do that, Bobby? <laughs> give us a glimpse. <laughs> I'm online a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And what do you do online, Bobby? Do tell. <laughs> well, a lot of people, um, I mean, most people don't know what I do online. I I answer a lot of inquiries from people, try to help them work out how they're going to arrange for education for themselves and things like that. Or if they're having a big problem um, with their family, or a medical problem, I help put them in touch with the assistance that yeah. they need. So you're, you're sort of what I would say a very nurturing grandmother and you're a helper and connector. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. Now, the, the question I think of our audience to so listen to us is you could have somebody else do that, right? And say, you know what, I, I've... I'm going to delegate that to other people. That's all that nitty gritty stuff. That's a lot of hours online. Oh, but I do, I, I do include other people all the time. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm not suggesting you don't Bobby. So I want to be clear. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't see you as this power mad grandmother. So good, good, good. I, I want to clarify that. But the deeper part is, and this is the question for all of us as we investigate our fourth acts, you know, some people keep going with something that they're very passionate about and I see as one of them. And some people transition into other stuff and there's mm -hmm. no right or wrong about it, but you keep going. And I, I want to stress also, you go every summer, you go to, to back to the camp. I've been to that camp. That's a pretty rough and rugged place. You know, <laughs> I remember sleeping in, in the cabins there going, dang, I like a little more comfort. Uh, <laughs> but you keep going back to do So what's the thing that animates you that hasn't said, stop, I've done enough. Uh, let me just visit once a year and be, you know, be the wise elder who they'd cheer on in a, in a meeting or a session, but you, you're in there doing the work every day. So what is it that keeps you going? I love to watch people grow. And, and, and at camp, they grow by leaps and bounds. They grow so fast. For example, a couple summers ago, a young boy decided that he had hurt his foot mm -hmm. and needed crutches. The nurse gave him crutches and, and, uh, you know, took him to the doctor and so forth, and nobody could find out what was wrong with him. He kept going with his crutches until um, one night the nurse and I were watching kids listen to music, and we saw this kid get up and dance. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, I can fix this one. So I sort of, I go around with my camera these days because yes. that's, it, it, when I stopped being the executive director, I I decided to be the photo, photographer recorder mm -hmm. of things. So that allows me to go everywhere. So I went, I sort of followed him around, and then he went he went to a a special activity on dance, and he was sitting beside to the side 
with his crutches. And I went up to him and I said, gee, I bet you want to get up there and dance. And he said, yeah, I sure wish I could. I said, you know what? You don't need crutches. You need courage. And he stood up. He handed me the crutches. He told me to bring the crutches back to the infirmary in case somebody else needed them. Mm-hmm. And he danced his, his heart out. He, it was so funny. And then later people told me that when they asked him where his crutches were, he said, I don't need them anymore. Bobby told me all I had to do was have courage. And I have courage. <laughs> that phrase, he danced his heart out, is... I mean, it's such a beautiful metaphor for what we all can do or the yes. option we have any time in life. And we get to define what dancing our heart out looks like, don't we? Yes. Um, I want to add w- one related question. You also serve on several boards of organizations mm-hmm. that I, 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 I assume matter to you. Um, how do you choose what boards to get on? Is it just that the right person asks you? How do you make those decisions? And how much, because board work requires also energy and deep commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me let me stop here, the second part to it. But how do you decide how to get involved? Always I was asked by people I care about mm-hmm. and uh, who are doing things I care about. Mm -hmm. So one is from my old dance camp. The camp director asked me to be on the board. Um, The Mosaic Theater, I was asked by Ari Roth, who was the founder. Mm -hmm. Carter School, I just started. um, And that's at um, George George Mason University. Um, But that also, I was asked by a friend of mine. I'm a graduate of Rowland College. Well, it makes sense. There are obvious connections to your story and your life yeah. that bring you to these places. I'm going to ask it. It feels like such an old people question, but I feel like I have to ask it. I'm qualified. I, I'm, you're qualified. You know, I'm 65. I'm a little, little younger than you, but mm-hmm. my body is changing. My levels of energy change. Mm-hmm. You're 78. Mm-hmm. So how do you manage your energy? and especially when I think of you as the grandmother of Seeds of Peace and you have all of these grandchildren all over the world. And how do you manage yourself energetically to do all of this service? Well, I'm doing what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's really an important thing. I have a hard time, I think probably like most people, doing what I don't want to do. Yeah. So I procrastinate on those things. But I think, you know, I don't feel like a has-been. I don't feel like I'm useless. As my mother said, and she lived to be 103 in seven months. Watch out, Seeds of Peace. (laughs) (laughs) She said to me, you know what? I hope you have a long life, Mm -hmm. but not as long as I've had. Mm -hmm. And she, she meant that she ran out of purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And as long as you have a purpose in life, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and I think as long as you can keep learning. Yeah. 
So if you look back to the young Bobby, Mm-hmm. And from your vantage point now, if you were to whisper some words of wisdom into young Bobby's ear, what would you say to her? Well, probably that you sh- you should recognize what you're afraid of, mm-hmm. but don't let that stop you. Mm-hmm. And just keep and and literally keep moving in a direction that you you really want to move into it would be so easy to decide that since you can no longer do the splits uh your life is over mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people do i think the saddest thing for me is to one of the saddest things i can think of a lot of sad things but yes. one of the saddest things is to see people who have really dull lives, unconnected, they get up, they get, they do all their chores, they watch somebody else on TV, they don't do any real interaction, and then they go to sleep, and then the next day they do the same thing. They're just existing. I, I find that very, very sad. And I, that's exactly the way I don't want to be. Yeah. And you're not. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think if, if, that, if anything is clear from this conversation, that's really clear. Uh, looking to the future, what kind of wishes do you have for yourself? maybe for seeds of peace, for the world? Ha- answer that any way that you wish to. As as your time, my time becomes more finite, at least on, on this ride around the planet. Um, what do you think of when you think of the future? I think kind of expansively about seeds of peace, mm-hmm. which is why I'm really excited about um, the ideas that the board and, and our new executive director, Josh Thomas have for seeds of peace. I've always felt that we wouldn't be doing enough if peace education wasn't taught in school the way math and language and literature and history are taught in school, that peace education belongs in everybody's education. And if you learn that early, if you learn to empathize with other people and see similarities between other people and give other people a chance, give them a turn or help them out, Go sit on the lonely bench with them, whatever, whatever you can do. Um, if you can learn that early on, well, then I think you have a good chance to have a wonderful life. That's a beautiful note to end on, Bobby. I, I'm sure there are people listening to us. They're going, gosh, I want to learn more about Seeds of Peace. Or about Bobby and uh, your life is seeds of peace, but it's more. Uh, where would you direct them to? Where would people go to get more information? www.seedsofpeace.org. Mm-hmm. And the seeds of peace is all strung together. Yeah. There's something about me on on 
that website too. You can just click on um, board members. Yes. And I'll be there. Wonderful. And if I can just expand on what you said, uh, in preparation for this conversation, I, I looked at the website again and it does an extraordinary job of also chronicling the history of the work, Yes, uh, which especially in politically in many ways darker times that we're in right now, it's inspiring to be reminded of what is possible. So to our listeners, I think when you look at the chronology of what's done, for me, it's a chronology of hope and uh, hope that we need to carry into the future. So I, I thank you for the work you've done, and I thank you for continuing to be in it, Bobby. Thank you. And I I think if if, if Seeds of Peace does nothing but give people hope, then that's really something. So I, I, I appreciate that very, very much. And Thank I appreciate you, Bobby. you. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.